it's been a year since I spoke, and um, uh, a, a lot of good things have happened. And like I said, I married Jamie, and God knows she makes me a better man, and uh, so I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, but I had three awesome new treasures come into my life. As you guys know, Caleb and Kelsey had uh, Raylan, which is mine and Jamie's niece, and then uh, some close family friends of ours, Becca and Hilton, had their little girl named Reagan, and then my best friend slash brother, uh, Cody, and his wife, Laura, had their son, Noah. So, so it's been a busy year. It's been an awesome year, though, and been a lot of good things have happened. But, you know, the thing that I'm most thankful for for the past year uh, regarding our church is I don't believe we're in the same place we were a year ago. I believe that we're stronger. I believe that we have taken the right steps to reach more people in our community, and I believe that we're growing spiritually, mentally, uh, even with common sense, because I've grown in that area. So, you know, I'm not throwing shade at anybody else that's directly uh, meant to be at me. So I've got a little bit better in the common sense area. And so, you know, I see this growth pattern happening with our church, and it's so exciting. It's so awesome to see that because we are a church that reaches our community. And if you're new and this is your first time, the sermon's for you because we're going to get down to what makes 2911 special and how we, how we go out of the way for our community. But as we start, I'm going to quit saying all these terrible things about Alabama and, and try to make you feel a little bit more comfortable, right? But uh, the first statement that I have is we're all just ordinary people with the potential to do extraordinary things. Now, growing up, you know, your mom probably set you down every morning as she handed you those biscuits and eggs and said, babe, I love you and you're special. There's nobody like you in all the earth. And it's true. You're unique and you're crafted. And God even tells us that, that, that he formed us in the womb, that he formed a future for us. While we were still in the womb, he tells us that in Jeremiah 29, 11. And that's even one of the scriptures that is the heart of our church. But, you know, the thing is, is we have to make choices that reflect where God wants us to go and the future that he has for us. So we have choices that we have to make, and the key word there is potential. We're all ordinary with the potential. Now, potential means what you're expected to become. Now, that's not my expectation. That's not your mom and dad's expectation. That's not Rick's expectation. Uh, that's not your boss's expectation. That's God's expectation for your life. You know, potential. It's what you're expected to become, and God is going to put every resource in your life to help you make the choices that lead to a big and bright and beautiful future for you and your family. And the, the thing I want you to get, if you don't hear me on anything else today, if you don't listen to anything else I say, I want you to remember this six-word statement I'm about to say. And I want, it, I, want, I want you to put this in your life, and I want you to cultivate it, and I want you to see how it changes your life. And that statement is you get what you go for. You get what you go for. Now, I didn't say this in first service, but I'm going to say it now. You know, if you're, if you're married, you remember the first time you laid eyes on your wife? And I'm not, I'm not going to get graphic, okay? I'm not going to do anything like that. But you remember? You remember how she, she stopped you, and she didn't even have to say a word, you know? And you knew at that moment, boy, she's special. i got to go get her. And you make the conscious choice to go get her. You make the decision Hey, and it may, it, may have been, it may have been some time before you got her. You may have been rejected. You know, you might have been one of those guys. You may have had to wait a while before you got to go get her. But guess what? She's your wife now, and you got the trophy, buddy. So you got what you went for. 
And so I want you to think about that and how we apply that to our life in everything that we do, not just our relationship with our wife or our husband uh, or, or the future that you want to give to your kids, okay? And so I want you to think about that through this whole sermon. And we're going to talk about history, too. And some of you might say, God, Kyle, I hated history class. It sucked. My teacher was terrible. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible, okay? So just hang in there. Be attentive. And remember, you get what you go for. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to share your word. God, I believe it's a word that you put into my life. God, for every soul that's here, and God, every person that's going to listen to the podcast in the coming weeks, God, I ask you just to bless them, God. I ask you to encourage them. I ask you to strengthen them, God. God, let them know that you're there for them. God, let them know that if they make the choices that reflect your will, God, the limits are impossible for, for what you have for them. And God, I just believe that in your name. God, anoint the service, and God, anoint every word that comes out of my mouth. And we love you. Amen. So, so we're talking about Dunkirk, right? And I'm going to do my best not to tell you the movie, but you know this is based on a true story, so I've got to tell you the movie, right? So there's obviously a, a, a beginning and there's an end, so there's a stuff in the middle that's in the movie that I'm going to stay away from, okay? Because even in the movie, it's based on factual things that happen, uh, but it's also fiction within there too. So I'm going to stay away from the, from the inside of the movie, and I'm going to just kind of tell you the, the story of Dunkirk. But like I said, I'll do my best to make it as interesting as possible. So in 1940, in 1940, Germany launches, um, Germany launches Plan Yellow, which they call the Manstein Plan. Now, like I told you before, if I say something that sounds funny or goofy or and you want to laugh, just go ahead and laugh. I am not German. Jamie is half German. Some of you guys probably don't know that, but she cannot speak any German. So my German is not fluent. So if I say something goofy, just go with it, okay? But the Manstein plan, if you'll go ahead and show them the map, Kevin. And they launched this in May of 1940, and you can see kind of where Germany's coming from. They're coming from the south, and in 1939 is when World War II officially started, and they invaded Poland. And they took Poland from the north, and Poland's kind of up out of the picture. You can't really see it. But their second wave of attacks was to take France and Belgium and eventually try to get over into England. And so when they launched Plan Yellow, they launch it from the south. They're coming through southern France, and they're coming from Poland. And they're trying to, what they're trying to do is trying to squeeze the British and, and French armies into one area. And how they do this is they launch what they call Blitzkrieg. Now, Blitzkrieg is something that Germany came up with. And what it does is, is it's a swift-moving military encounter. So it's just boom, 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 boom. They, they don't let up. And so Germany launches this Blitzkrieg this relentless attack to, to try to take France as quick as they can. And what that does is it doesn't give the army that's opposing them a chance to reset, to regroup, to, to put on a better front to handle the German army. So, so Germany launches this blitzkrieg attack. And you know, like I said, you can tell where they're coming from. They've already taken Poland. They're coming in from southern France. They're coming through uh, Belgium. And so what England has done, England has decided to help... France, and they create the Allied powers. Now, uh, at this time, we know the United States is not involved in World War II, right? That happens after we get attacked with Pearl Harbor. Well, God knows if the U.S. would have got involved, we would have took care of business, right? I had to put that plug in for the U.S. because USA, right? Go USA. And uh, anyway, so, so England has come and, and, and tried to help France, 
battle this German, German army and they're doing everything they can, everything they can to keep Germany at bay. Well, Germany launching, launching the Blitzkrieg has pushed, uh, pushed the British and the French armies all the way to Dunkirk. Now, you can tell and see where Dunkirk is, okay? It's, it's right there. There's the water. And as you see, there's Dover. Does anybody know where Dover's at? Dover is in England. So from Dover to Dunkirk is about 45 miles on land. It would be 39 nautical miles if you were on a boat, which is equivalent to about two hours of boat time from Dover to Dunkirk. Well, think about that. They've went in. They're trying to beat Germany. They're trying to, they're trying to keep them at bay, trying to keep them as far away from England as they can. And they get pushed back. They get pushed back. And they get pushed all the way to Dunkirk. And by the time they're at Dunkirk, they even make reference to this in the movie, you can practically see England from home. It's only 45 miles. And Dover's famous for the white cliffs. You can see them if it's a sunny day. You can see them from a far distance because the sun reflects off of them. It's just beautiful, beautiful. And, and in reference to the movie, they say, you know, we can practically see home. They can practically see home, which is what? Safety. Safety. They just dealt with Germany. They, 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 they've been relentless. They've pushed them back. They've had a lot of casualties. Uh, their food supplies running low. And by the time they get to Dunkirk, it's over 400,000 soldiers that are pushed to Dunkirk. And by this time, they have no food. The water supply is scarce. Germany is, at, is surrounding them at all sides. And Germany makes the decision, or Hitler, let's not confuse uh, Hitler uh, making decisions with other people, right? So Hitler decides, hey, we're going to pause the army. We're not going to send the army in to kill him because at the, at, the, at the arrival of his Nazi commander, Hermann Borig, who was also the, the German Air Force uh, commander who is over the Luftwaffe, and comes to him and says, hey, let me, just, uh, let me just bomb them. Let me just wipe them out with bombs so we can save our tanks. And you've got to understand, at this time, Germany, as far as technology is concerned, is so far ahead of any other world power. Their tanks are super fast. Their German U-boats can't be seen uh, because they have the ability to go into water. America has not developed technology that, that can compete with that. And shoot, America's not even in the war yet, right? So, so Britain's really undermanned. And, and so are the French. And Germany is just, they're launching this blitzkrieg. They're launching this all-out all pursuit of, of wiping out these soldiers. And so they push them all the way to Dunkirk. And you can see there's 400,000 men who are stranded on the beach. And if you, you can see in the corner, it says that's a real picture. So that's exactly what it looked like at Dunkirk in, in, in May of 1940. And then below you have the movie reel. So you kind of see the, how, how it really resembles what really happened. And so by May, May 27th, they're pushed all the way to Dunkirk. But the cool thing, if you can call it cool, is Winston Churchill and England sees that they cannot handle the German army. They know they can't. So on May 14th, they launch something through the BBC that we all, we all know what that is, right? BBC News Channel. And they launch a, a, a statement asking every citizen that has a boat, a private boat, if they can have that boat enlisted in the military because Britain is really, really struggling on ships. They don't have enough ships to go get these men. And, and what they estimate initially is they'll only be able to save about 45,000 men. They know that there's 400,000 men they're getting pushed back and being killed daily. 
And they're only thinking they can save 45,000. That's, that's so sad. It's such a sad thing. And, and so as they, as they ask these, these normal citizens to, to answer the call and, and, and enlist these boats in the Royal Navy, they realize we don't have enough people who can steer these boats over there. We don't have enough captains. We don't have enough people who can do that. And so what ends up happening is you have normal, ordinary citizens like you and me who have to answer the call to save lives. To go save their troops. How scary is that? How scary is that? You know, what, what, if, what if we had a, 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 something go out across Fox News this afternoon that said, hey, we need every available person to, to help us go fight a war? I mean, that would be terrifying. That would be terrifying. But you know what happened? These normal, ordinary citizens realized the need. Realized the importance that they could play in helping their soldiers have life and, and their country. Because if, if these soldiers are wiped out, there's no telling what happens. We all know Hitler's plan was to take over the world. It was to take over the world. If England falls, they have a direct launching pad straight at the United States, which what happens affects you and me today because who knows if some of our family members would, would have been able to, to, to be alive for us to be here. So think about that. Like You have these normal citizens who are called on to change a war that's going to affect thousands of people to come. Millions of lives to come. So they answer the call. And again, you get what you go for. And what was the first thing I said? We're all just ordinary people with the potential to do extraordinary things. And so as we go, as we go you can kind of see how the ship looks like. That is not, that's not a British destroyer. That is not a Navy sea vessel that can handle war, right? that can handle bombings. That is a boat that we would go put on Smith Lake, right? It's just, just, just a normal boat. And you can see what it looks like in real life than what they did in the movie. And so these, these citizens take on the call. And at one point in the movie, there's this really, this really uh, scene that just, just grips you. And in this scene, something happens on, on a normal boat like this. And the father ha- has a son with him. And uh, he needed help. He couldn't do it alone. So could you imagine taking your kid, much less you're going, you're risking your life to save people, and then you're taking your kid with you. I mean, that would be terrifying. It would be absolutely terrifying. And so as this is happening, something happens uh, with the boat, an issue occurs, and the kid is ready to go back, ready to go back home to Dover. He ain't playing this game. You know, I'm scared. And he turns around and he tells his son, there's no hiding from this. We've got a job to do. There's no hiding from this. So these citizens had took on this call like, like their life depended on it. And they were willing to do that. And what we see as time goes on and, and the fight begins, there's over, 200, there's over 200 Allied vessels that get sunk by Germany. Now that's from the Luftwaffe over top. That's also from the German U-boats. And, and so what you've got to remember is these private vessels are donated to the Royal Navy. And so they're enlisted as an actual vessel within the Navy. So these are, these are real-life people, real-life boats that can't, can probably fit maybe 40, 50 people max that are enlisted in the Navy because they don't have the numbers. And you can see right here, the Germans destroyed 177 Allied aircraft and sunk more than 200 ships, including six British and three French destroyers. Now, what we know is it's roughly about 180 private boats were sunk. So that means... That's a lot of ordinary people risking their life to 
to change the outcome of a situation that they didn't have to, but they did it. They did it. So, so you have, you have um, six British and three French destroyers that, that are destroyed. However, Royal Air Force and French air fighters shot down 240 German aircraft. And at the beginning of the movie, you, you, when, when these soldiers get to the beach, they're wondering, they're asking, why is our Royal Air Force not here defending us? Because, again, you've got to remember, Hitler had called off the dogs, so to speak. He was just bombing them. He was just going with the planes because he wanted to conserve his men and he wanted to conserve his tanks. And so they're just bombing them day and night. And the English, the English people and the French people are wondering, the soldiers are wondering, where are fighter pilots? Well, come to find out, Germany had so many more planes than what, than what, Germ, or than what England and French could, could bring out that they had went and met them. So they, they were fighting on two fronts. So halfway across the channel to Dover, you had the Luftwaffe picking the, picking the Royal Air Force, meeting them right in between, and they were having air fights right over the ocean. So they never made it to the beach. And so you got the Luftwaffe that are just bombing the beach, but then they're fighting on the front uh, where the Royal Air Force are coming in. So, so these soldiers are helpless. And you've got to keep this in mind. You've got to remember this. This is critical. They have no food. Water is scarce. You've got, you got soldiers that, are, that, are, that have nothing. They, they have, they're running low on ammunition. They have no support. But home is 45 miles across the bay. 45 miles to safety. And they have no hope. They, can't, they can see home, but they can't get home because people are not coming. They, they, they're getting bombed left and right. They know, they know that the Royal Navy does not have the ships to get them all off. But what do they see? They see hope. They see hope because the Royal Navy who was manned by all these normal, ordinary citizens, just like you and me, who made a choice to do something extraordinary, come to the rescue. And we can see the numbers right here. An estimated 338,000 Allied soldiers were rescued during the evacuation, which was officially known as Operation Dynamo. Prime Minister Winston Churchill and government officials had at first predicted that it would only be possible to rescue around 45,000 men before German forces blocked further evacuation. British citizens helped to shatter that estimate by offering their own boats and lives to help assist in the Dunkirk rescue. At one point, Winston Churchill was on record as saying, you know, we're going to be lucky if we can get 30,000 people out. Because that estimate was initially given on May 14th, and they had pushed those 400,000 men to Dunkirk by May 27th. And they didn't think they would be able to get as many soldiers out as what they did. But you know who answered the call? Ordinary people just like you and me, who said, I'm going to go save my guys. I'm going to go save our troops because I believe in what they're fighting for. I believe that they're trying to give us a better future against an evil tyrant that's trying to take everything that we love, everything that we have. Ordinary people change the course of a war. And who knows, if, if they don't do this for Dunkirk, we probably never talk about Dunkirk. As a matter of fact, you know, it's, it just goes down as a major blunder in history. Who knows if England's still around? What if Germany conquers the whole world? If Germany, con if Germany conquers the whole world, what happens? You and I probably aren't sitting here right now. We're wearing little swastikas around our, our, our arms right here, right? Walking around in military uniforms. If you were blonde-haired. And I was as a baby, so I probably would have made it out, right? You know? And it's a, ser it's a serious thing, but if you think about it, 
these people, these ordinary people who make this choice to do something extraordinary change our lives right here in this room at this moment. They couldn't see 2017, but they knew they had to make a choice. They knew they had to fight for something bigger than themselves. And you know what they said? There's no hiding from this. Because you get what you go for. You get what you go for. And so we have this, this historical tale, this true story of normal, ordinary citizens that make this conscious choice to be extraordinary. And I'm, I'm going to say that probably a million times because I want you to get it. I want you to take it out of here. Because you have the potential to do that yourself. You have the potential to pursue God with everything you have and watch extraordinary things happen in your life. It's true. It happens, and we see this in Jeremiah. We're going to go into Jeremiah 38. And uh, I'm going to set it up the background first before I go into the Scripture. At this point, if you've been reading along in the Bible Project with us, you know that Israel is this wishy-washy nation. Okay? Kind of sounds like the good old U.S. of A. right now, right? They, they love God, and then they hate God. They love God, then they hate God. They want God when, he can, when they need something, and then, oh, when things are good, you know, we'll go back to living our lives this way and, and completely rebel against God's will. And so, as we've read through the Bible Project, you see that there's no stability in Israel. Things keep going back and forth. It's, it's wishy-washy. There's, there's things that, that are happening. And at this point, uh, the king is King Zedekiah. And we know for a fact there's one righteous person, and his name's Jeremiah. And so God speaks to Jeremiah and wants Jeremiah to go speak to King Zedekiah. And this is the story. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, and plague. But whoever surrenders to the Chaldeans will live. He will keep his life like the spools of war and will live. This is what the Lord says. This city will most certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon's army, and he will capture it. So Jeremiah hears from God and goes and speaks to the king. So imagine you going in front of President Trump or even President Obama when, when he was in office and commanding his attention for the, for, for the time that you need to talk to him. Could you imagine being one-on-one with the most powerful man in your country? Or a woman. You know, it could be a woman too, but could you imagine that? Could you imagine being one-on-one with that person and commanding their full attention and having a chance to help them see what God wanted? To help them see what God wanted. It's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. But the key thing, Jeremiah made a choice. Jeremiah made a choice. I'm going to obey God. And I want to see my people saved. I want to see my people saved. And as we go along in the story, we find out that King Zedekiah didn't really listen to him. So the officials then said to the king, this man ought to die because he is weakening the morale of the warriors who remain in this city and of all the people by speaking to them in this way. Now, we hate officials, right? Especially if you're an Alabama fan and you were one second away from a national championship. Sorry, sorry, I had to throw that in there. But listen, listen. What, what's the thing? What, 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 they try, what are they trying to say? Even when you stand up and do something right, you might face opposition. It's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be complete flow because God has a, a plan. He has a lesson for you to learn, and you're going you're gonna to face opposition. But at the end of the day, the enemy is that opposition. He's going to try to stop you from being everything you can be. And there's no different for Jeremiah here. This man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but disaster. King Zedekiah said, here he is. He's in your hands since the king can't do anything against you. So they took Jeremiah and dropped him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the guard's courtyard, lowering Jeremiah with ropes. There was no water in the cistern, only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. 
If you've ever been mudding, you know if you don't get that mud off quick, quick enough, it turns really hard. It gets, I mean, it just hurts when you've got to pull it off. It does not feel good. You probably won't have any leg hair when you're done, right, guys? So, you know, you're, you're dealing, you're, Jeremiah's put in this cistern where there's no water, there's no food, and it's just kind of like Dunkirk, right? He can see home. He can see up through the top because a cistern would take the rainwater as it fell, and it would store the water for the people. So he can see home. He knows home's right there, just like those soldiers could see Dunkirk. And so he's thrown in this mud. He's thrown, he's thrown in this cistern with no hope, all because he did what God told him to do, right? Faced opposition. He, fa- he had a struggle he had to go through. But there's always something cool that happens with God, right? There's always a but. Oh, God likes to throw those buts in there, don't he? As we see in the next scripture, but Ebed-Melech, now I'm not going to say Ebed-Melech the whole time, I can't say it right, like I told you from the beginning, if you want to laugh at me, that's fine, so we're going to drop Melech, and we're just going to call him old Ebed, okay? Old Ebed, kind of, if you follow along in the scripture, kind of reminds me of of a guy we have here, his name's John Norton, just a good old boy, get down and dirty, going to fix things, you know, that's what old Ebed was, but old Ebed, a cushite, court official, employed in the king's palace, heard Jeremiah had been put into the cistern. While the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate, old Ebed went from, from the king's palace and spoke to the king. My lord the king, these men have been evil in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have dropped him into the cistern where he will die from hunger because there is no more bread in the city. So the king commanded old Ebed the Cushite, take from here 30 men under your authority and pull Jeremiah the prophet up from the cistern before he dies. So you got Jeremiah, who we know is pursuing God, listening to God, believing in his plan for Israel at this time. We know that. But there, there, there's that one person who stands up with him and says, I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to help you. And guess what? God didn't intend for you to face adversity alone. He didn't. We see it time and time and time again in Scripture where, where a man of God is, is battled or a woman of God is, is battled and they're put into a terrible place and, and, a, and a terrible time in their life, and God brings somebody along to turn the tide, to make the difference. Sounds kind of like those ordinary citizens who made an extraordinary choice to change people's lives, to rescue those soldiers. Sounds kind of familiar, don't it? Sounds kind of familiar. And as we go on in Scripture, as we go on in Scripture, in Jeremiah 38, so old Ebed took the men under his authority and went to the king's palace to a place below the storehouse. From there, he took old rags and worn-out clothes and lowered them by ropes to Jeremiah and the cistern. Now, could you imagine Jeremiah? Jeremiah's in this cistern, caked in mud. He's had not had water. He's not had any bread. And they're lowering him rags and worn-out clothes on a rope. And you know, all he wants to do is come up out of this mud pit on that rope and my goodness, they've, they've put rags down to him. I mean, and you know he's hungry. You know he's thirsty. You know he's begging for that. But it doesn't say that Jeremiah got frustrated. He listened. So old Ebed, the Cushite, cried out to Jeremiah, Place these old rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. I wouldn't want my armpits burned either, would you? Uh, Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. But he continued to stay in the guard's courtyard. So just like, just like these soldiers who can see home, there's not been any hope. They don't, they, all they see is the Luftwaffe bombing them. 
tearing them down, killing their men left and right, and they have no answer for it because the Royal Air Force can't get to them. Jeremiah was in that pit, didn't know what was going on outside. Didn't know that there was an old Ebed standing up for him, taking, taking his side to see him saved because he knew that Jeremiah had something that would change a nation, that would preserve a nation, that would keep them safe until they could do what God had told them to do or until they had turned to God. It sounds a lot like the soldiers at Dunkirk, right? It sounds a lot like it. We have normal citizens. They couldn't see what was going on in England. They didn't even know that Winston Churchill had, had, had sent out an issue because communications had been down. And so the only way that they could communicate was by the ships who were at Dunkirk that had been sunk. So, so think about that. These guys literally have no hope. And I, I guarantee you, Jeremiah was the same way. But I'm telling you something. If I was Jeremiah, when I come up out of that pit, I'd be finding them officials, right? They threw him down in this pit to leave him to die, and he's trying to save their life. He's trying to save their very life, and those people turned their backs on him. Sounds a lot like Jesus, didn't it? Sounds a lot like Jesus. But that's not what we're trying to talk about. We're trying to talk about Jeremiah. And the key thing is at the end, when there's another butt thrown in there, there's another butt thrown in there. But Jeremiah stayed in the courtyard. Jeremiah knew his purpose, and he was going to see it fulfilled. He was going to stand firm in what God had told him to do until it came to fruition. And you can see, even when you're doing things right, difficult situations can happen. But God will bring you out of the tough places to help change people's lives. And as Jeremiah stands in this courtyard, he stands in the courtyard knowing that God has called him to help Israelite, to, to, to help the Israelites, to help preserve Israel from being completely destroyed because he knows King Zedekiah is about to make a really dumb choice. And he can't, he can't defeat the Chaldean. But you know what Jeremiah does? Makes a choice to be extraordinary. And like I said, he could have he got out of there. He could have said, you know what, God, I've tried to obey you. I've tried to do what you told me to do. I said what I needed to say. I'm washing my hands of it, out of it. See you later. These people can die. He could have done that. He could have done that, but he didn't do it. He wanted to be an instrument of change for Israel because he believed, he believed that the God that he served will continue to make ways for Israel to come back to him. And we see that in Scripture. And as you continue to read in Jeremiah 38, if you go back and study this, you see that King Zedekiah chooses to surrender. And now King Zedekiah kind of make in the scripture he's kind of like oh, i don't know if i should surrender because what's going to happen to me but eventually king zedekiah does surrender and it saves an entire nation and you may say to me like oh well that's surrender that's not believing in in what you're going for but let me tell you something god had believed in these people and he continued to believe in them or he wouldn't have told jeremiah save my people tell him to surrender so so sometimes surrender is the best thing. It helps you make that jump. Because when you surrender completely to God's will, you may feel like you're taking a step back, but you're really taking three or four steps forward. Because God has a plan, and He has a purpose for your life. Because remember, we're all just ordinary people with the potential to do extraordinary things. You get what you go for. You get what you go for. So, I'm going to get ready to close. If you guys want to go ahead and make your way down here, it's something that, that we do at 2911. If you're new, we like to close around front. 
uh, like a big family would uh, right, right after they get done eating and playing games on Thanksgiving. That's what we like to do. So if you would, everybody come up to the front. So we can see right here in Isaiah, I want to talk to you a little bit about, this isn't Kyle telling you this stuff, okay? This isn't Rick telling you this stuff. This is God. This is God telling you, I'm going to be with you. If you trust me and you make the conscious choice to go after something extraordinary, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. No matter if you get thrown in the mud, no matter if you feel like you're abandoned on the shore with no hope, with no help. God's going to do that for you. And he tells us right here, Isaiah 46, 6 and 7. I, Yahweh, have called you for a righteous purpose. And I will hold you by your hand. That's not God saying, hey, stretch your hand out to me. That's him saying, I'm going to hold you. I got you. I got you. You just got to trust me. I will keep you and appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. In order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. That's what God tells us. It's what God tells you. It's what He tells me. An ordinary person who's going to choose to do something extraordinary. You can be that. And you may already be taking steps in your life for that to happen. Just like those normal citizens did to save an entire army. So that that army could in turn protect its people. Just like Olebed did for Jeremiah. And just like Jeremiah did for the Israelites. So I ask you, what are you going for? You got issues in your marriage? Do you have issues at your job? Do you have issues with your family? Can you not communicate to your children without them blowing up on you? Or kids, can you not communicate to your parents without them blowing up on you? You get what you go for. If you want peace and stability in your home, you'll go for it. You won't make no excuses about it. You're going to make it happen. If you want a better job, you've got to, you've got to put the finishing touches on that resume and send it out, right? You get what you go for. You get what you go for. And i got one, one thing I want to say right here, Kevin, if you'll go back one slide. When you pursue God and His plan, no matter the cost, it will not only change your life, but also the people around you. And as we went through the sermon today, I hope that when I've said, made the statement, you get what you go for, you, maybe something's clicked, like, oh man, I need to get better in this area. I need to get better in that area. Well, not only when you go for something in your life, will it change you? It's going to change your family. It's going to change your work atmosphere. It's going to change the people that you're connected with on a daily basis. When you go for something in your life, when you choose to go for the extraordinary, it impacts everyone around you. So what do you choose today? Do you choose to keep living a normal life? Do you choose to keep going through the motions? Are you making a conscious choice to go for something bigger than yourself? Because I'm telling you, those citizens in England, they didn't think about you and me when they made the decision to go rescue their boys. All they were thinking about were those boys. But what happened it affected an entire war that infect, infected us today, here and now. So your decisions and your choices today 
can impact your family, your line of your family for years to come. Years to come. So what are you going for? What is your purpose? If you don't know it, that's what the prayer team's here for. They're up here every week to pour into you, to help you, because you can't go get things on your own, right? Right. If Jeremiah needed help, you need help. If Jesus needed help with the 12 disciples, you need help. And that's what we believe at 2911. You weren't meant to do this alone, but we do believe that you have something awesome to do for Jesus, which will impact the people around you. And we want to help you get there. We want to help you get there. And so I challenge you, take that step today. This prayer team is up front. I'll be down front. Pastor will be down front. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. If you, if you don't know the direction you need to go, let's start praying that, that God gives you clear eyes and a clear conscience and a clear vision of where you need to go in your life. Because I believe that when you make that choice to step up and go for something extraordinary, He's going to meet you there. We see it time and time and time and time again in history. We do. And so, Jamie, if you want to go ahead, go ahead. But I, I challenge you, again, please, please, this prayer team is here for you. They're here for you, specifically for you to help you go where you're meant to go. Let's pray. God.